Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. A lot of things going on. Our guest today is Matt Lewis, senior columnist for the Daily Beast. Matt, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Hey, good to be back. We have a lot to go over. I want to talk about Rush Limbaugh. I want to talk about uh, the Tea Party. I want to talk about a lot of things that are going on. But could we talk about CPAC for a moment, Matt? <laughs> oh, geez. I... We were just discussing who 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 was the first person to say that CPAC was the Star Wars bar scene of the right. I don't, I don't know, but it's been that way for for you know for a while. So I, I devoted my newsletter to uh, sort of dunking on on CPAC. I mean, there are a lot of more important things to go on, but but it's kind of like if you notice that it's an annual ritual, Matt. That that Matt Schlapp just discovers that he's that he's signed on another complete <laughs> whack job, any Semitic, racist, conspiracy theorist, pedophile, defending nut to be one of the featured speakers of CPAC. And once again, this year, they did not disappoint. I mean, it, it keeps happening to these people. It's confusing because I know that, number one, they're, they're working with only the best people. <laughs> and number two, I know that their vetting process is, is extensive. And yet, it seems like every year this does yeah, happen. Just happens. So they they put they put out what what I think should be one of the tweets for all all time yesterday midday um, CPAC twenty twenty one. We have just learned that someone we invited to CPAC has expressed reprehensible views that have no home with our conference or our organization. The individual will not be participating at our conference. So Matt. Someone at CPAC had reprehensible views. Um, I think it was like the entire world, you know, commented at the time. That didn't narrow it down. <laughs> but, you know, what, what reprehensible views? Lying about an election, you know, inciting a riot, saying neo-Nazis are good people. No, it actually turns out to be. I mean, there were just so many possibilities. It turns out to be someone, and I, I, I kid you not, named Young Pharaoh who was identified by CPAC on their website as philosopher, scholar, musician, and actually complete crackpot. <laughs> so uh, he's claimed in the past that Judaism is a complete lie. Jewish people are thieving. All censorship, all censorship and pedophilia on social media is being done by Israeli Jews. Uh, and he's also into frazzle drip. You know, the whole conspiracy theory about Hillary Clinton peeling the face, uh, faces off baby. I mean, this guy is... I mean, he's 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 crazy with with hair on it. And I guess the question is, if Matt Schlapp or one of his interns had, had spent five seconds researching this guy, they'd realize he's effing nuts. And yet there he is. Yeah, this happens yeah. again. Like you said, every year, I think wasn't Milo Yiannopoulos yeah. was, uh, a couple years ago unceremoniously dropped. Um, it's like clockwork. Uh, and I have to say, I do have a certain amount of expertise on this, Charlie. I don't know if, if you realize exactly who you're talking to here. I um, I was the CPAC blogger of the year. Um, I think oh, wow. 2012 or 2013, I'm not sure. But I have a certain expertise on this. And I can tell you, my theory is that CPAC has long been one half P.T. Barnum yeah. and, you know, one half William F. Buckley. But I think that ratio over the years it, has um, flipped a bit. It's on a sliding scale, and I feel like it's now ninety-five percent PT Barnum. So, but once upon a time, it was um, you know much like the aforementioned Rush Limbaugh, 
uh, there were certainly some some cringeworthy moments, but it was it was a much more respectable, serious I, thing. Uh, again, as recently as whatever twenty thirteen, let's say I I was uh, among the esteemed at at CPAC. I feel you're being unfair to PT Barnum. <laughs> I really, there's 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 something there's something worse about it. Um, so I, I actually uh, was there in twenty sixteen, as recently as that, and it was it was already sort of barcini, but. The amazing thing about this was it was incredibly anti-Trump at the time. That was the year that he actually refused to show up because they were going to ask him tough questions. So it was, it was you know, anti-Trump. The, the organization turned on a dime to the point where, OK, there was once a time when you'd have a range of intelligent conservative speakers. Now it's just it's like it's it's MAGA fest all the way down. I mean, it is just grifters all the way down, nut jobs all the way down. Yeah. And yeah, and now it used it, to be a combination um, I don't think I would be safe to go to CPAC today. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, <laughs> I would need like a safe room probably. Uh, but I used to go every, every single year for, you know, for like a decade or something like that. But I remember the year and again, it's, you know, it's all sort of faded. I think it was maybe 2011. Um, it might've been later. Anyway, uh, there was a year when Donald Trump spoke at CPAC. Yeah, I remember. Yes, okay. And I was against that publicly. Mm -hmm. um, and and by the way, they had just. It's funny. I'd have to pull up the tweet, but they had just disinvited some other and like some anti semite. And I had praised CPAC for disinviting this other person who who I totally forget. But then the next week they invited Donald Trump, and um and I think that that was he was at the time he was a birther. He was an advocate of birtherism. Trump was. And I condemned it at the time, like on Twitter. And I think that opened the door to Trump's run. Um, so CPAC was was there at the beginning. Now they're going to probably be, you know, resuscitating his career at a time when he's yeah. off Twitter, when people are trying to move past him. They're once again giving him this lifeline, giving him this, you know, this this prominent megaphone. Um, and I think it's it's super sad for the conservative movement, obviously. Um, but I remember in 2016, there was a story like in Politico where Marco Rubio's team were accusing um, CPAC, which is run by the American Conservative Union, of taking money from Trump. And I think Trump did oh. give them oh, I'm sure tens of thousands yeah. of dollars. Well, that's the way it would work. So anyway, the but one last comment on Young Pharaoh. Who was uh, who was was who's canceled? Okay. Um, the theme of this year's CPAC is America uncancelled, <laughs> and, and yesterday they literally canceled Young Pharaoh. I'm I'm sorry. I just can I just roll around in the Schadenfreude just for a few minutes here? <laughs> just so they canceled him. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see who what's the next shoe. There's there's also a a a, a, a speaker who has called a Sandy Hook shooting a hoax in the Parents of the Dead Children actors. I don't know whether they consider that reprehensible. Okay, so one last thing on on on, on Matt Schlapp, who, and, and, and I know you and I have these conversations every once in a while. We go, I'm old enough to remember when this person was not a complete shill or a complete serial pathological liar. Matt Schlapp has really, you know, transformed himself into, um, in, into not just a Trump flopper, but somebody who goes on uh, CNN last night and continues the election lie. I mean, they are CPAC and Matt Schlapp 
and Trump are still invested in the big lie. The election was stolen. And he had this exchange with uh, with uh, Chris Cuomo last night where Cuomo is trying to press him. Like, do you have any evidence? Do you have any evidence? Do you have any evidence? And this is the way it went. Why ignore it? You're right. They did. They did fail. But guess what? You know this. You're a good lawyer. Just because you fail in court doesn't mean you don't have a good case. It means you're lost in court. And the fact remains that you can say it wasn't enough voter fraud. I don't think any voter fraud is acceptable. I actually think we should try to get rid of all of it. You should never be able to mail. You should never be able to vote through the mail in this country without somebody on the other side making sure it was you. Uh, yeah, John Ralston from uh, Nevada points out that uh, multiple times during that uh, that appearance, he said that um, a smirking uh, uh, schlap said twice, actually, that there was no signature verification of mail ballots in Nevada. Uh, that is a lie. Uh, so, you know, Matt, 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 the, the the this this investment in lying about the election. They're just not going to let it go, are you? In fact, it's going to be a litmus test for Republicans and conservatives going forward that you have to believe the election was stolen if you want to be viable in in the MAGA Republican Party. Oh, yeah, that's totally true. And I think it's, you know, part of the big lie is, you know, repeat it long enough and it becomes a fact. And I think that that's kind of what they're hoping for is an alternate reality where this becomes their truth. Schlepp's an interesting person, of course, you know, he worked for George W. Bush. He met his wife working for George W. Bush. He then worked for the for Coke Industries. So this is like an, a smart establishment type no, person. I, I, I've known him for a long time. Whose wife, you know, then goes to work, you know, in, in Trump's comms department in a very senior position. Schlapp and makes a lot of money. In fact, I think he made a lot of money off of people who wanted pardons from Donald Trump, according yeah. to reporting. So, yeah. There's no it's, bottom um, sleeves there. It's a very swampy type situation. And I just wonder this weekend, for example, you know, all four of the major Sunday morning news shows had Republicans on who were basically spreading the big lie and that were not willing to concede that Joe Biden actually won the election. And I just wonder why. Why are mainstream outlets allowing this to happen? Why are they helping elevate this idea? Like, shouldn't it be a disqualifier? If you're not willing to say that Joe Biden won the election and is the legitimate president, if you're not willing to say that, I'm not sure you ought to be on mainstream media television. You know, I was going to ask you that question, what you thought about that. I think that's a really a difficult situation when you're dealing with, you know, very powerful Republicans, because it is news. Uh, there's there's really no justification for putting Matt Schlapp on to lie about it, because, you know, the the, the, the viewers, the listeners are not, you know, disadvantaged in any fundamental way um, by not hearing the views of, of, of Matt Schlapp. But it is an interesting question. And, and you know, what happened last Sunday was one of those moments where you go, okay, are we really actually serving the public when all the shows have somebody on that is lying and they know that they're lying? You know, when I used to have a talk show, I I, I did have this one bright red line. I didn't care if anybody disagreed with me. But if somebody ever came on my show and flat out lied to me, lied to my face, that was it. I just was never going to deal with them again. And maybe that was you know, narrow-minded or anything, but that does seem like kind of a standard that that if you come on our air and you abuse it by just lying to me and to the listeners, you're done, right? I think that's totally fair. And I mean, this goes to, you know, I I have a piece out uh, where I basically say, you know, 
I think near a tandem ought to, there ought to be some consequences. And that if we live in a society where there are never consequences for anything, um, and there are no standards, then, then that's an incentive to, to bad behavior. And I feel the same way here. Like if you can go on network TV or, you know, mainstream media outlets and lie and bullshit, and you can just keep getting invited back and you're still like part of the crew, then why wouldn't you do that? If you're a political, you know, if you're a partisan hack, why wouldn't you do that? Like there ought to be some consequences. And like, I'm not in favor of some sort of radical cancel culture. I just am in favor of accountability and some level of standards. Like, yeah, I think that's actually right. a you, you want to can- you, you, you want to cancel Neratan. You had to go there. You, <laughs> you, you can't throw Neratan into the same category as Matt Schlapp. I have a soft spot for her because I think that she's one of the Democrats who actually understood the, the, the importance and the role of uh, Trump skeptical Republicans. And I think that that in that in that Venn diagram of, you know, right and left, people have an overlap. I think she's one of them. So I and I just think that it is just bullshit hypocrisy for a Republican Party that put up with Donald Trump to say, we're going to disqualify you because of mean tweets. So you have one senator after another that was like, oh, we never read his tweets. Well, tweets, we, we look at what he does, not what he says on Twitter. Now, suddenly it's, uh, hey, we got to take these tweets, these tweets, these mean tweets from this woman very, very seriously. There's something about a woman treating out mean things that seems to get these old Republican guys, Matt, kind of worked up. It's like, <laughs> no, we, we, have, we have to have standards here. I mean, we have, really, this is it. I mean. But there's American democracy and civility and everything. If we don't do something about this woman who's writing mean things about us on Twitter. Yeah, nah. no, I, I think there. you may well be right. I will say that I am I'm consistent because I was against it when Trump was doing it, too. But a lot of these Republicans, of course, were enabling Trump's mean tweets. But all of a sudden now they're, you know, outraged that there's, gam- you know, gambling at Rick's, <laughs> well, that's Rick's my, casino. That's my- Okay, so before we get it, we have like big heavy duty stuff to deal with here, like Rush Limbaugh. You got a great column about Rush Limbaugh um, and about the Tea Party, but can we just can we just do a little bit of Ted Cruz stuff first? Because Ted Cruz goes on a, a podcast. It's what is it called? Ruthless podcast where um, it, it's it's one of these podcasts where I think I, I my understanding of the format and Jim Swift, you can correct me, our producer Jim Swift, where basically guys come on the, the podcast and assure one another that they can they really ought to be even worse assholes than they are. Is that kind of the format? Do I have that? Do I have that right? Yeah, it's Josh Holmes and comfortably smug and ruthless as a reference to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and uh, she's no longer around. So. Uh, and their images of the, of the Supreme wait, Court. So wait, it's it's named after. So they have a podcast celebrating the fact that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is no longer around. That's why it's ruthless, Charlie. Okay, I'm really glad I asked this question, Jim. Thank you. That's va- <laughs> that is that is value added. Okay, so Matt, um, then how appropriate is it that Ted Cruz goes on this podcast to talk about what happened with the Cancun thing and, and including? The the fascinating little episode where his quote unquote friends and or neighbors leaked his wife's text messages, inviting them all to the sun, fun, surf and turf of of, of, of Cancun. Somebody leaked that to The New York Times. And, and 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 Ted Cruz has some thoughts about that. Let's just play Ted Cruz on Ruthless. 
Yeah, I will say Heidi's pretty pissed at that. She actually was over at a neighbor's house yesterday, sort of walking through. So she texted several of our neighbors. Now, look, our neighbors, we've got a number of Republicans who are neighbors, but we also have a number of Democrats. Right. And so, you know, with folks on our street who put up Beto signs, which I thought was a little, That's a, little uh, a little rude. Yes. Um, but, <laughs> but you know, I was, like... you know, I didn't like hold a victory party in the front yards when we, when we won. So, you know, I was, uh, look, obviously... So, it's a sign of how ridiculously politicized and nasty and, and just, you know, here's a suggestion. Just don't be assholes. Yeah, like, right. like, just, you know, treat each other as human beings, have, have some degree, some modicum of respect. Heidi and I have lots of friends who are Democrats and, and, you know, we'll. Okay. So Ted Cruz. You know, maybe people ought to be assholes. So, Matt, bear with me for a moment. Can we work with me through this? That it is just possible, just possible, that Ted Cruz is not overburdened with self-awareness. <laughs> the biggest asshole in the Senate goes, you know, maybe people shouldn't be such assholes. I mean, really. <laughs> Where'd you go with this stuff? Yeah, well, I mean... I get what he's saying in a sense, right? I mean, it, it has to be. If you weren't Ted Cruz. It has to be really unnerving when people that you think are confidants um, yeah. sell you out to the media. But, of course, Ted Cruz <laughs> has done all sorts of horrible things to invite this sort of, uh, of response. So I'm not, I'm not going to be too sympathetic for Ted Cruz's plight, but it does have to be um, disconcerting and unnerving to know that like people, and, and you don't know who they are, right? You have no idea who the moles are. No, no. And so I, I get where he's coming from, but you know, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Well, uh, yeah, that's true. Now, speaking of which, and, and you as the author of uh, Too Dumb to Fail, the reaction by Texas Republicans to this, you know, massive energy foobar is really quite extraordinary. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. We don't have time to go into all of it. Uh, Texas uh, seceded from the the national grid, which is sort of ironic. Uh, they also have a completely unregulated uh, energy system. Uh, they never weatherized uh, many of their, uh, much of their, their infrastructure, which caused much of it to freeze, including natural gas. Um, but there seems to be this desire, at least when they're talking to the national media, to blame this on the Green New Deal or somehow, and 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 Ted Cruz has gotten around to that as well. This 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 is this is Ted Cruz on I don't know one of the one of the shows last night. We just came off of a very difficult week where the grid failed four million Texans, and so we need to have a serious examination about why that was, why the grid came short. But one of the major elements of that is actually the policy that Schumer is pushing for the whole country which is the Green New Deal. You look at Texas right now, about 25% of our electricity capacity is wind. And yet, in the middle of this storm, that capacity dropped all the way down to 2%. You want to talk about reliability. The, the reality was in the cold, the wind turbines froze, and, and the power generation wasn't there. That needs to be... <laughs> So, Matt, it is interesting. I, I don't think that Chuck Schumer makes energy policy right now for Texas. Yeah, it's just so frustrating, right? Because if you don't examine yourself, which Ted Cruz doesn't do, and if when disaster strikes your state, 
rather than being introspective and, and figuring out what you did wrong. And by the way, last time I checked, you know, Texas has a, despite what Donald Trump Jr. may think, Texas has like a Republican governor and two Republican senators, and it's a pretty red state still, um, although it's trending purple. If you're not willing to be introspective and deal with what you actually did wrong and what you could do to improve, if instead your move is to blame outsiders, <laughs> then you're never going to heal. You're never going to fix the problems. And yeah, so that's no that's a real problem. It's a cycle. And I think it's actually indicative of a lot of, of what the problem is in today's Republican Party. And, and Ted Cruz is part of that. No, he, he is. And you know, and part of this, and I don't want to spend too much time on 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 Texas. Um, you know, I I am been one of those conservatives that think that one of the things that conservatives have done well is to point out unnecessary regulations. But there comes a point where you have to ask which regulations are bad and which regulations aren't. Saying we want to slash regulations is like saying we want to slash uh, we want to slash laws, or um, there's just too many notes in that symphony. Well, some regulations are probably good to protect the health and safety of of the community and, and 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 perhaps some of the deregulation in Texas was not such a great job. Okay, so you and I both waded into the whole question of the legacy of Rush Limbaugh last week. Now, I, I, I've said this several times, and I'm sorry to repeat it for listeners of the podcast, but I'm sure you experience the same thing. It's difficult to do that in the wake of the death of anyone. Okay, so I mean, I, I do understand people who think that you should never say anything um, except good things about people who are dead. But you know, we're 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 also at a point where we need to talk about where we're at as a country, the nature of our politics, and you can't talk about that without talking about Rush Limbaugh. So, um, you you were a young ditto head. You had a different experience. You're in a slightly different age group than I am, <clears throat> and um, so you actually kind of grew up being inspired by by Rush Limbaugh. So, talk to me a little bit about what happened to you. What changed? Did you change or did he change? I think. All of the above, but I think he, I think he probably, well, I'll tell you the story. I mean, my dad, my dad was a prison guard in Hagerstown, Maryland for about 30 years. One of my first memories is my dad taking me to the polls in 1980 when he voted for Ronald Reagan. Hmm. So that'll give you an idea of, of kind of what I grew up with. Um, I, you know, I, I was a kid when Reagan was president, so it was kind of easy for me to be a conservative. Reagan was president. And I loved Reagan and my dad was a good man and he was a conservative. So I didn't have to read a lot of Russell Kirk or Edmund Burke or Bill Buckley to be in that sense, a cultural conservative. And then uh, around 1988, my dad started really recommending that I start that I listen to this brash young conservative named Rush Limbaugh, who was on the air. And at first I wasn't that into it, but you know, we're probably driving somewhere and dad got me hooked on Rush. And and I listened to Rush Limbaugh, you know, for like a dozen years after that, really religiously. I mean, you know, there were summers like when I wasn't in school or when I was working at a gas station, let's say, and I would just have Rush on in the background. And I would listen to like five days a week, three hours a day. And I mean, if Rush Limbaugh had died in like 2000, it would have literally been like a member of my family dying. The intimacy of radio and having, yeah. I was kind of lonely at some points and just having him there every day. 
uh, really, really meant a lot to me and shaped my politics. And I really outsourced not just a lot of my opinions, but my facts about the news to Rush. And it wasn't until I actually started working in the conservative movement where I started noticing that, in, in fact, there was one occasion where I was actually at an event that Rush later talked about on his on his show. And I noticed like some of the way he described it or framed it for his you know millions of listeners actually wasn't quite right. It didn't comport with what I had personally witnessed. And I started noticing that happening. And it made me think like how much of this has been happening for the last, you know, 15 or 20 years yeah. I've been listening to him. Like how much of what I assumed he was, because I thought like Rush is smarter than me. Rush is, you know, better connected than I am. Um, and then over time, the scales sort of fell from my eyes. I started listening to him a little more skeptically. But I also think Rush Limbaugh really changed as well. I think that that Rush, when he was, you know, when I started listening to Rush Limbaugh, he was like 38 years old, mm-hmm. living in, you know, New York City. Um, and he was like very tech savvy and irreverent, fun. And I do think over over time, he he changed. He got, as we all get older, he got older, but I think he also got got more cynical and, and jaded and I'm sure more addicted as well. You know, this is interesting because last night um, I actually was listening to a podcast discussion of Russell and by and they were playing and they were playing some of his very early 1990s stuff. And it sort of brought back those memories that he was um, you know, high energy and funny and clever. And he really went out of his way, though, to make, I thought, interesting points. He wasn't lazy. It was there was a period where he was trying to talk about conservative ideas and explaining conservative ideas in a way that struck people as compelling and fresh. Yes, there was the outrageous stuff. There was always all the outrageous stuff. But he really was trying to get into the idea of, you know, I mean, getting to the idea of conservatism as a vital uh, as, as a vital ideology. But that did fade because ultimately and, and I, I got a lot of flack for saying this last week, but ultimately he was not that interested in ideas. Ultimately, um, that was a shtick for him. And it took a lot of work to do some of that stuff. And I think that his success uh, being a power broker, I think, changed his approach. Uh, he went through some personal things, including including, you know, the deafness, which, by the way, as somebody who did uh, talk radio to imagine doing a daily you know, three hour show when you can't hear is, I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, you know, for all the critical things I say about it, and that's, that's still remarkable. Um, but I do think that there was that cynicism that came in and, and, and as, and as I, I think uh, he was in a competitive environment, he went from being a thought leader to being a thought follower. He was afraid of the audience getting beyond him. He was scrambling to, to keep up and, and, you know, and, and unfortunately, you know, you know, he inspired a generation of, of young conservative, but I also think he took them in the wrong direction by by normalizing that that cultivated insensitivity and cruelty and learning to sort of roll your eyes about you know racism and sexism and, and things that became you know these were all a joke and everything, and uh, that was probably not healthy. So when you wrote the book Too Dumb to Fail, had you already thought that conservative talk radio like Rush Limbaugh was dumbing down the conservative movement? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, And part of it was that, you know, when Rush Limbaugh started, 
not only was he more winsome, but he was the only game in town. So I think you could forgive him for, you know, the irreverence and the outrageousness because number, so part of it was there wasn't Fox News, you know, there wasn't like Mark Levin. I mean, we've been saturated. There wasn't yeah. like Glenn Beck. I mean, if Glenn Beck was out there somewhere, but but there weren't a lot of places to go for kind of a reverent conservative contrarian opinion. He was kind of the only game in town. And he was also, you know, a little bit, you know, earlier I was talking about part P.T. Barnum, part Bill Buckley. What, you know, Rush was also like part Howard Stern. You know, there was part shock. Shock, shock. shock. Yes, very much so. Yeah. And an understanding that there's a shtick involved in that. But also it was limited to the radio. Like, in other words, it was like ephemeral. You know, you would listen to Rush say something outrageous. And then it would go away. It wasn't being captured. And like like when he said the Sandra Fluke thing, which I think was part of an effort of his, sadly, to generate buzz and be a, and be provocative. Like when he said that, it didn't just disappear. It was like rebroadcast on MSNBC constantly. And by then, other outlets were like playing Rush. And so the I think the context had changed, um, you know, not to excuse some of the things that he that he said in the nineties, which frankly, I probably wasn't sense enough, sensitive enough to at the time either. Um, just, it was a different world, but uh, yeah, he was different. And I think he became a much darker, you know, in the eighties or in, in the late eighties, early nineties, he was still sort of living off the borrowed capital of Ronald Reagan and Reagan had this sunny optimism, but I think over time rush became darker. And in, in 2015, you know, Charlie, I wrote a piece at the Daily Beast begging Rush Limbaugh to, quote, smother Donald Trump. And I yeah, reason oh, that, yeah. mm-hmm. I reason that, like, I'm not sure if anybody at that point could have stopped Donald Trump. But if there was one person in America who might be able to, it would have been Rush. And of course, Rush didn't didn't do what I pleaded and pleaded for him to do. He 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 went he went with his followers, with his listeners, instead of being a leader. Yeah, the one thing I do remember, I do remember that piece and, and thinking that there was a moment of maximum vulnerability of the Trump campaign when it was still on takeoff, where if Rush Limbaugh had said, this is wrong, this is the wrong way to go, I think things might have been different. We don't know, um, because, you know, may, maybe same thing would have happened to him that happened to people like me, which was, was that the audience was already off on that direction and they were going to go no matter what. But um, he, he did not do that. And I remember in 2015 when he switched from Walker to, to Limbaugh, it was, it, was, it was a very significant moment. And I think, you know, but also I think that it's not just that he supported Trump, is that he had created, he'd softened the ground for Trump, you know, that, that he had prepared the way for him in a way that maybe was irreversible by then. I just, I just don't know. Yeah. Now I, I did say, you know, when I thought about it, when I was, when I was first writing my, my book, you know, how the right lost its mind, which was um, in many ways inspired by your book, too dumb to fail after the election, I, I did think about the, the thought experiment of, you know, what if, if in fact he had turned against Trump, because we kind of had a laboratory here in Wisconsin where all of the talk show hosts were anti-Trump and Trump did not win here. That, you know, what would have happened if he had not had the air cover of talk radio to rationalize uh, his lies or his behavior going along? Uh, we, ju- we just we just don't we just don't know. So th- this is a related topic because um, we just had the 12th anniversary of the Tea Party. 
And you were an early critic of the Tea Party. And, and just let's talk about that. Because I, I, I think that the Tea Party is complicated in a lot of ways because, and you, you could feel disagree, disagree with me here. I thought originally that it felt like a real grassroots movement that really had principles. And I'm looking at some of the pictures of the, of the Tea Party from 2009, comparing it to the MAGA rallies. It looks nothing like it. It looks so normal, like regular people. And yet it really did take a turn. And, and I, I, I admit that I wrestle with this. Uh, what was it really all about? Clearly, it was not motivated primarily by fiscal conservatism. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I, I, um, <clears throat> I think there were definitely good people in the Tea Party who, liter who, who, who sincerely were motivated by spending. But I think in hindsight, it's clear that that was not the animating feature for most people. And I can tell you that so in my book, Too Dumb to Fail, I talk about speaking at this conservative event where um, I was mildly critical of the Tea Party in like 2010. And um, the audience, I lost the audience at that event. And there was a leader of the conservative movement who was fairly prominent, who, who was there, who sucked up to the Tea Party. And later this person staffer told me like, he actually agreed with you, you know, <laughs> but he couldn't right. see, he, he didn't want to say so. And I think that's indicative of the Rush Limbaugh problem where our adults, the so-called adults who ought to be uh, policing the right would rather uh, maintain their position by pandering to the masses and the mob. Um, so again, I am somewhat sympathetic. I mean, I've, Unlike some of the Republicans today, I've, I've actually criticized Trump for spending, uh, for spending. So I, I'm a fiscal conservative. I, I understand that part of it, but I don't think it was the primary motivation for why the Tea Party started, really. And if it, if it ever was, it, it quickly was replaced by other things. It was. And there was something about the Tea Party from day one that really bothered me. And it, it had to do with the the, the populism and uh, the, the identity politics and the victimhood and even the cosplay, you know, I mean, they weren't wearing Viking helmets yet, but they were wearing those weird tri-corner hats. And I just I don't know. I think that's bizarre. Like, honestly, I, like, I became a conservative partly because I didn't want to go to rallies and protests. And you, here didn't we were. A, you didn't become a conservative because you could dress up in cool colonial outfits. Really? <laughs> No, actually, I, I didn't. thought that I thought that was part of the deal. You got invited to all the cool parties and you got to wear cool stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, you know, I, I started off blogging uh, for human events and then I worked at townhall.com for a few years <clears throat> and um, pretty hardcore stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I started off, you know, like as a, you know, in, in the conservative, you know, blogosphere of the time. Um. And it wasn't until around 2010, if, if you look at my book, if you look at my book, Too Dumb to Fail, that came out in 2016, it was really the product of, of reporting and writing that I started doing in 2010. And that's when it occurred to me that the conservative movement that I, up until that point, had been very on board with was going off the rails. And that's when you had Christine O'Donnell and Sharon Angle running. And that's also when, in my opinion, Sarah Palin really radicalized. I've taken a lot of heat for this, but no. I actually thought Sarah Palin was a great governor of Alaska 
and thought she, I, I totally understand why John McCain, in hindsight, it was a bad pick. But at the time, I totally get why he picked her. But it was around t- 2009, 2010, when I think she really radicalized. And you had Andrew Breitbart, whom I personally liked, but I think he was, you know, pushing this, you know, war, politics is war meme and, and sort of um, replicating yeah. or trying to ape the Sololinsky um, ethos. And so for me, it really, the what we're living with now, MAGA, the beginning of it was probably started with the Tea Party and, and the anniversary, the 12-year anniversary of that Rick Centelli rant we just celebrated last week. That was the, the impetus for my column. So it, you had a piece, and I, I think I quoted it in my newsletter yesterday, where I had a hard time disagreeing with. You wrote, uh, Matt, uh, a dozen years after its inception, it seems obvious that the Tea Party was a bridge to Trumpism. It led conservatives toward a style of politics that fetishized populist rallies, fear-based appeals, identity politics, victimhood, moral relativism, xenophobia, anti-intellectualism, a conspiratorial resentment of the ruling class, and even the sort of weird rebellion cosplay that was on full display this past January 6th, along with the Gadsden flag. I think that there's a, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, and it's really kind of a tragedy because I think a lot of the people did think they were getting involved in something else. The other thing that happened was the way the grifters settled in. And this is something else on the right. Uh, because I remember very early on um, when, you know, pre-Trump, I kept asking the question, who exactly is the Tea Party? Who's speaking for the Tea Party? Because uh, I have all these groups popping up that claim that we are the Tea Party or we are the Tea Party. And, um, you know, who, who, who basically gave you the, the franchise? And many of them were extremely strange. And then, of course, you just had the people who were just raising money off of it, uh, using the outrage machine to raise as much money as possible. So there's, you know, part of the story of, of the right has just been the way that so much of these things have been taken over by by the grifters and the people who are looking for the cl- uh, clicks and the contributions. Yeah, like one of the one of the big Tea Party groups was run by like an old guy who's a Republican kind of moderate establishment guy for decades who came up with a group that had Tea Party in its name and started making a lot of money off of it, you know. And so, yeah, there's no brand, you know, no no ability to sort of um, <clears throat> manage the brand or control the brand. And so I think it very, even if, even if you think it started off with very noble intentions, I think it very quickly was like co-opted and metastasized. And so, you know, I don't, I don't want to un- sort of unfairly criticize people who like sincerely were concerned about the direction of our country and spending but I do think it's clear, regardless of those folks' motives, the Tea Party is part of the story that turned into MAGA. And it is ironic, right? Because, you know, I write about in that column at, at The Beast, like, you know, ostensibly the Tea Party was about controlling spending and about being like libertarian, anti-authoritarian, um, and all the things that the Tea Party ostensibly started off being for turned into an authoritarian, you know, MAGA movement that ended up spending a record amounts of money. So let me let me bounce tonight. So just a, a thought off you about what's happening to the Republican Party, because we've talked a lot about how the fact that the 
that the uh, the party, particularly at the state and local level, has really been crazified. Whatever's happening at the national level, it's way worse at the at, at the state level. And now, I have three stories out of Wisconsin that I think are really illustrative because I think that the Republican Party in Wisconsin used to be kind of known as reasonable people, believe it or not. Um, very, very successful in flipping the state, reform-minded. This was the state of, you know, Paul Ryan and, uh, you know, Ryan's Priebus at one time was the, you know, leader of the, you know, of, of, of the party. So in crucial Waukesha County, which is the heartbeat of the Republican Party here in Wisconsin, they actually had a movie night the other night and they showed My Pillow Guy's movie. They had all these people show. It's an official event. Mike Lindell's absolutely batshit crazy movie. That's number one. Up, up in the northern part of the state, Ocano County, a couple of Republican activists submitted a resolution to the party to condemn violence of all kind. Very, very reasonable sort of that we stand against violence against, you know, da, da. it was actually voted down by the attendees, about 55 to 45 percent, because it was perceived to be potentially critical of Trump. And then I got an email from a guy from Waukesha County who describes how he wanted to be a Republican activist. He said, you know, that he was active in the Waukesha County Republican Party during the 2012 cycle when he was in high school, then he went to college, then moved back here in 2017. He wanted to stay active because he believed in Republican politics, uh, you know, wanted to support people like uh, Scott Walker. And he says, I can remember as far back as 2018, though, he starts showing up at the meetings and they were talking um, about QAnon. They were already talking about sealed indictments, you know, Hillary's arrest and execution. And let me just read this paragraph from this email I got. The real doozy was when I unfortunately found myself sitting through a presentation of all of the quote unquote research behind these theories after a social event. At least 100 slides of memes and unflattering pictures of Democrats and celebrities. I sat and watched as people I, that I thought were rational, other grassroots Republican activists, and even the former county GOP chairman got sucked into these theories in a matter of minutes. It was insane. Literally like sitting through a cult recruitment. And this was 2018. This is the base. So, Matt, this is what I would about. You know, we keep asking, why are these local parties becoming crazier? I mean, it really is self-selection, isn't it? Because the normal people are being driven out. If you are a normal person and you show up at a local Republican meeting in Arizona or in Georgia or in Wisconsin, you're going to look around and go, these people are nuts. This is not a club I want to be a member of. Yes. And then it becomes self-selecting uh, and it just spirals. And, you know, you'll hear about this in in, in sports occasionally, right? The, a football team has a culture problem, too many negative attitudes or something. And so the coach yeah. goes in and, and you might get rid of talented players because they're bad in the clubhouse or bad on the bench. Well, we can't really, it's harder to do that. And there's no, nobody has the, uh, the authority really to police this. Um, and so it, it, it I, I do think, yeah, it's, it's a problem at, at the micro level. It's a problem where an individual local Republican party, um, the, the good people, what is it like uh, bad money chases out good yeah, money exactly. or whatever. Per, per, perfect image. Yes, exactly. You know, the bad, you know, decent people flee and uh, the people who are left are, are bad people. And that's certainly happening at the micro level. I think it's a product of something that happened also at the macro level. I, I think that that Democrats made a conscious decision that they were going to focus on um, 
cer- certain demographics, right? Um, the coalition of the ascendant, mm-hmm. I think, was the a f- somewhat offensive term that they that they meant. But basically, the Democratic Party decided that they were done with working class white voters, at least done pandering to them. And so they were going to focus on, you know, college educated suburbanites, and they were going to focus on Hispanics and, and, and minorities. And that was like a political calculation. And I think they had first mover advantage. They picked their coalition. And I think what Trump basically did was say, rather than fight them over that and dispute that, let's, let's go with it. They've, you know, the Democrats have abandoned all of these working class, older working class white folks. Um, Let's rile them up and turn them out. And it actually worked. Yeah. One time. Um, And it it may work again, but it's 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 a losing bet in the long run. But Trump made it work once. But I think that, that that's part of the story as well as to how you ended up with these this um I think, wasn't it called uh, adverse selection? You know, remember during Obamacare, there was this worry that if you didn't have an individual mandate, sick people would be the ones who sign up for health care. And that would that would bankrupt the system because of this. The term was adverse selection. Yeah. I think what's happened with the Republican Party is adverse selection in a sense. And I know that's super offensive, but, you know, you can email me at charlie sykes at gmail.com if you want. <laughs> no, I think I actually think you're right about this. And and it also it's one of the things that explains what is otherwise a mystery, which is the um, the derangement of somebody like a Ron Johnson, who I had high hopes for, as you know. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I said the other day uh, that, you know, I, I'm puzzled by Johnson's obsession with these various conspiracy theories, because they certainly don't reflect what what the average person back home is is worrying about and thinking about. And somebody pushed back and said, well, maybe they are, at least from his point of view. And, and, the, and the point was, when Ron Johnson comes back to Wisconsin and he talks to Republican activists, the kind of people that show up at these meetings, this is exactly what they are thinking about and talking about. That, in fact, he is reflecting what he thinks is his constituency because that is the base of the Republican Party. And he is genuinely reflecting um, the degree to which that party has become nuts. So, um, Matt Lewis, thank you so much. We have so much other ground to talk about. Next time you come back on, I want to talk about uh, uh, your, you know, how we feel about how the Biden administration is doing. Uh, I think you're somewhat more more skeptical. Well, I think we're both skeptical, but but at different degrees. I, j- I just think our needles at a different level of of all of that. So I'm just um, happy that we can argue about normal politics. <laughs> oh, I, you know what? I I am really looking forward. To having a real debate about the minimum wage and the Keystone XL pipeline. Although I will say, have you read about this latest story about uh, the guy that got essentially fired at uh, Slate Magazine for talking about the use of the N word? Yes, uh, that oh, is. Can- I, I think now, based on what I know, I, mean, calls, yeah. I don't know everything, maybe, but from what I've heard so far, like that really is cancel culture. And it is. And that's a problem. Well, and the, what's what's concerning about that is that there are some things that we cannot talk about. I mean, I my takeaway from that story, which I'm sorry to just you know do as sort of a drive by here, is to use a Rush Limbaugh phrase, <laughs> um, is that they were having a discussion about this on Slack, and and I thought it was a substantive discussion, which people had different points of view, 
And apparently the expression of different points of view is considered beyond the pale within certain journalism circles, which is quite alarming. Yeah. So the, and it used the, to be a liberal value, which very be, much so. Let's hey, man, let's just talk about, you know, let's ideas. And now this is the opposite. This is illiberal. Actually. It's very illiberal. And it's also dangerous because this whole notion that we need to have a national dialogue about certain issues. We need to have a dialogue about race. No warning. They do not want a dialogue. Do not enter into this dialogue because this guy did. And he is now out of a job looking around going, wait, I thought that's what we did here. I thought we discussed things. Um, I thought we had differences of opinion. And there is this growing ideology that that disagreement is somehow an assault on someone's humanity. And I will say that my my main takeaway was, thank God I don't work there. And I am never going to get drawn into this particular debate or conversation because you cannot have this conversation. So um, that is not a good thing. That is a negative thing. So Matt Lewis, thank you so much uh, for joining us. You can find Matt's work at uh, The Daily Beast, where he is a senior columnist, uh, and the book has aged extremely well, Too Dumb to Fail. So Matt, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thank you. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.